Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been around Wildwood the, the last few weeks, you also know that we're in the midst of a series uh, where we are focusing on the person of Christ leading up to Resurrection Sunday, leading up to Easter. We're talking about meeting Jesus on the way to the cross in a series that we have called Passion Road. And we began this series back in, in February, and we began by just talking in general and kind of a prelude about what it meant for us to meet Christ and to, to begin a relationship with Him. Then we focused on the parables, some of the, the teaching of Christ, and then the power of Jesus, the miracles that He worked. Then we looked at the purpose. Why did Jesus come from His own words? In the last week and continuing this week, we're focusing on some perspective about the person of Christ uh, from passages of Scripture outside of the Gospels. Last week, Pastor Bruce walked us through Colossians chapter 1, and today we're going to look at another of these perspectives about Jesus uh, from the book of Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Um, but before we, we open up and look at that perspective from Revelation 1, I want to share with you all a picture. Um, I don't know if you recognize this little guy. Uh, in the picture, uh, but this is a picture of me. Uh, it's not current. Um, that, that picture is from maybe when I was about four years old. That's me, you know, circa 1977. And uh, let's just say that is the only picture you had of me. That's the only piece of information that you had about me was that picture. What could you tell about me from that picture? I want you to just think about it for a second. I think one of the things you could, you could tell is that I'm kind of a snappy dresser. You know, you might get that. Uh, I like to sit on ladders. You might get that. Uh, I hang out at Olin Mills uh, Photography Studios. I mean, some, some things you might pick up just by looking at uh, this picture. But you know what? This picture, though, it would tell you certain things about me, and though it certainly was accurate for a point in time in my life, it is not complete or sufficient to let you know everything about my life currently. Uh, there would be some gaps. There would be some things missing. At least I hope so, all right? Uh, if, if you think that picture fully tells you everything you need to know about me today, then I need to go home and cry myself to sleep tonight, all right? Uh, because hopefully there is more to me than that picture. Though that picture was accurate in its setting, you need a whole scrapbook in order to get to know me better. It would be helpful not just to even have pictures, but even a conversation with me to fill in some of those gaps. If you really wanted to get to know me. One picture simply is insufficient in order to get to know somebody. And I share that with you today because as we talk about the person of Christ, as we talk about meeting Jesus on the way to the cross, uh, sometimes I'm concerned that our vision of Jesus might be simply one photograph deep. We might only have one little picture, one little portrait of Jesus from which we pull all of our information from. And for, for different ones of us, it might be a different picture that we have when we think of Jesus. Maybe it's the picture of the baby in the manger. Maybe you've got a nativity set at home or two or three or four or five, and, and, and at Christmas time you get that out. And when you think of Jesus, you think of that baby in the manger, and that's your, your picture of Jesus. That is an accurate picture of Jesus. It really happened. And yet, by itself, it is insufficient to tell us everything God wants us to know about him, isn't it? 
maybe it's not just that, maybe that's not the picture that you have. Maybe you have a different picture. Maybe you have a picture of Jesus in the, the carpenter shop with his dad, and you just think of Jesus in this very human way, in this way that he related to a human family, and he did very ordinary things, and you might have a, a picture of Jesus that's like that. Is that accurate? Did Jesus really have a father who was a builder? Did he really work in that shop? Absolutely. But is that everything you need to know about Jesus? I don't think so. Maybe your picture is not the manger or the workshop, but maybe your picture of Jesus was informed uh, from your experience going to Sunday school as a kid. Maybe on the wall of your Sunday school class as a kid was a, a picture of Jesus with you know, the, the, the blue eyes and the wavy hair, kind of Fabio with a beard. You know, you know the picture of Jesus I'm talking about? Maybe that's the picture that you have of Jesus that you're hanging on to. When I say Jesus, maybe that's the image that you pull up. Or maybe it's not those things. Maybe it's the cross with Jesus still on it. Maybe you grew up in a tradition that had a prominent crucifix with Jesus still on it at the front of the church, and that's the image that you think of. Now, here's the thing. All of those things are accurate in their time and in their setting and in their place. All of those tell us something about the person of Christ. But I believe that all of those pictures by themselves are insufficient to tell us all that God wants us to know about his people. I mean, stringing them together in some kind of a scrapbook is really what the New Testament does to help us to understand a little bit more about who Jesus is. God didn't just give us one picture. He gave us 33 years of life. But one thing that's really amazing when you look at the New Testament is that God didn't just give us 33 years of the life of Jesus to fill our scrapbook of images of him. But 60 years after Jesus' death, God gave us a contemporary portrait of the Savior. God gave us a picture of what Jesus looks like now. And if our view, our vision of God, our vision of Jesus Christ does not include the passage of Scripture that we're getting ready to look at today, then frankly, we have an insufficient understanding of who Jesus is. And it's possible that our God is too small if we don't include the verses that we see today. You see, if Jesus is just a baby in a manger, then we might be tempted to want to protect him. If Jesus is just a a person in a workshop or Fabio with a beard, we might just want to relate to him as another human, as a a brother. If, If he's someone on the cross, he might be someone that we want to pity. But our God is so much larger than any of those single snapshots, and Jesus reveals to us the full grandeur of God. And in Revelation 1, we see that snapshot. And my hope is, as we look at the passages of Scripture that we're going to look at today, that we see the beauty and the bigness of our God, that we would trust Him more. I recently came across a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says this about the person of Christ. It says, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that, if, that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. 
I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all of his adversaries. You see, if our vision of God is something small, we will cower in fear at many of the things that we face in life. But when we see Jesus for who he really is, when we let the lion of Judah out, we trust him, we embrace him, and we can follow him anywhere. And so today, as we look at Revelation 1, my, my hope and prayer is that our vision of God is expanded, that we'll see Jesus for how great he really is, and that God would, would, would woo our hearts to trust him more. We're going to see three things today as we look at the book of Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. First thing we're going to see is this. We have something in common. We have something in common. We have something in common as we gather in this room. There's something that we have in common. We have something in common as we gather here, not just with our contemporaries, but we have something in common with the people of the Bible. We have something in common with the man who wrote the book of Revelation, the Apostle John. We have something in common with him. We see this in chapter 1 and verse 9. This is what it says. The Apostle John writes and says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, John writes this letter, he tells us, while he is on the island of Patmos. Now, where is Patmos and and what was it? Was Patmos a vacation destination where people went on spring break? I don't think so. Patmos in the first century was the Alcatraz of their day. It was the island prison. If you got crossways with Rome, Caesar could send you to Patmos to do hard labor, to work in the mines there. Very narrow, skinny, rocky island somewhere between Greece and Turkey. And prisoners would be sent there. And and what happened for John was, as John was was living out his life, uh, he he lived a, a long life, and he was well into his 90s, and he was pastoring a church in Ephesus. And eventually, the emperor of Rome got fed up with John's ministry in the name of Jesus. And he said, that's the only one of those darn apostles that's left, and I'm going to take care of him. So I'm going to send him to do hard labor on the island of Patmos, well into his 90s. And so the emperor sends John there. We know this, the uh, historian Eusebius talked about an 18-month imprisonment that the apostle John had. Uh, between his 95th and 96th years of life on the island of Patmos. You can imagine what that might have been been like for the Apostle John living out his time. Now, as I give you that context and as I share that with you, you might be thinking, okay, so what do we have in common with him? You, You set this up, you set this verse up by telling us that we have something in common with John. Um, I've never been imprisoned for my faith. 
you probably haven't either. I've never been sent to an island prison to do hard labor well into my 90s. You probably haven't either. So what is it that we have in common with the Apostle John? Well, I think that you kind of have to go a little bit next level to see our connection with him. See, John talks here, and he talks about how he was a partner with his contemporaries in what he calls a tribulation in verse 9, a season of difficulty, a time of trouble. For John, that specifically looked like his imprisonment on, on Patmos, but for us, our tribulation that we live today is made up of many different things, isn't it? It's made up of, of struggles with our health, struggles with our vocation, struggles with the, the climate of the world around us, struggles with our family, struggles with different relationships that we have. We, we have a lot of, of tribulation that is around us, a difficulty that we live in life. And like John, not only do we share with him, we have this tribulation in common with him, but John says that also there was this hope for a kingdom. See, John says we're, we're partners together in not only a tribulation but in a kingdom. That's this idea that one day Jesus was going to come back. One day he was going to set everything right. One day the lion would lie down with the lamb and Jesus would reign from his throne and we would, we would be able to reign with him. These were promises that Jesus had given. This was a, something that John had in common with his original readers. And you know, today we still have that hope that one day Jesus will return and make it all right. It's something that we have in common. But here's the difficulty that we have. Though we have that promise, as we live out this life in the midst of tribulation, we can begin to wonder if, it, if that kingdom is ever going to arrive. We can begin to wonder if this word is really true. We can begin to wonder if God really is mindful of our lives and our situation, if He really does care, because as the days draw to weeks, draw to months, draw to years, and we continue to live out our lives in the midst of tribulation, we can wonder if we got it wrong, if the Bible is not reliable, and if Jesus' kingdom is really not going to get here. That's why John says that not only are we partners in the tribulation, not only are we partners in the kingdom, but also we're partners in a patient endurance in Jesus. Because there's this gap between the promise of God and its full, fully being brought to, to fulfillment in our world, we have to patiently endure while we wait. That was true for John, and you know what? That is true for us. Think about the Apostle John. One of the last things that John heard Jesus say was, hey, I'm coming back. He heard that, that when, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the angels said to them, you know, he's, he's going to come back just the way you saw him go. And the early church was, was developing around this idea of the assurance of Jesus' soon return, of the knowledge that Jesus had said he would always be with them. And yet as John was living out his life as, the, as an apostle, it was beginning harder and harder for him to believe that that was actually reality. Think about it. All 11 other apostles had already died for their faith in Christ. John might have been sitting there on Patmos thinking, you know what, maybe we heard it wrong. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back soon. Maybe he's not as in charge as we think that he is. It's possible that he had a moment of despair in that, in that time out there on Patmos. 
It's possible that he might have been discouraged as he did hard labor in his 90s on this island. It's possible that as he was hoping and dreaming that maybe he could go back to Ephesus, be with his people and minister there, instead his life had taken a different and unexpected turn and that he was struggling with that reality. As he lived out his life in the tribulation, hoping for the kingdom, he needed some endurance. And you know what you and I do as well. You see, as we live out our lives today in this tribulation, we are are struggling in the midst of a world uh, that is in trouble. Now think about the emotions that you experience when you turn on the TV. If you watch any news program, within five minutes, your blood pressure starts rising. Kimberly informed me that we have a rule in our house now. We can't watch the news before we go to bed because it just raises our blood pressure, right, as you watch what's happening around the world. It's, 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 it's scary. It's difficult. There's, there's, there's tragedies happening in our city. There's, there's crimes and, and things like that. There's also these, these big epic world wars possibly looming overseas and the threat of ISIS and all of these kinds of things. And it's possible when we see all that develop, we wonder, is, is anybody in charge of this whole thing? Just, just the bad guys. What's happening? We, we can begin to wonder what's happening with this world. It's possible as we live in this time of tribulation, it's not just what's on the news that's got us upset, but also it's what's happening in our individual families. Some of you are here today and you've gotten a diagnosis in the last week, the last two weeks, of cancer that is, that is aggressive, of heart conditions that are, are, are serious. Um, you've got some difficulties that are happening in your life and in your family related to your health. An illness that has been going on for a long time is still there. It's tearing your family up. You've got some tribulation that you're going through in life. We have a hope of one day not having to deal with illness anymore, but right now the pain and the struggle is so great we wonder if God is aware, if he cares. Maybe it's not health-related. Maybe it's family-related. Maybe the sting of divorce or a child that has walked away from the family or walked away from the faith is just tearing you up right now. And you wonder, God, are you aware? Are you involved in this? Where are you? Do you care? It's possible in the midst of our tribulation for us to begin to kind of drown in the midst of the tribulation and the difficulty of this life. And you know what? If you are here today and you're struggling with that, know this. You're among a people who share that experience. The particulars are different, but folks, I I know many of you in this room, and I know your stories, and I know some of the struggles and the difficulties that are going on in your life. This is something that we share. This is something that we have in common. But here's what I want to encourage you with today. As we have in common that we live our lives in the midst of this tribulation, I want to challenge you to reflect on if you feel like you're drowning in the midst of that struggle. I want to challenge you to think about something. I want you to think for a minute. Do you feel like you're drowning in this struggle because your problem is too large? Or are you drowning in this moment because your God is too small? And folks, here's the reality, and I can, I can say this from my own personal experience. Though our problems feel large, and, and, and many of the things that y'all are going through are, are significant and serious. But here's the thing. Our God is always bigger. Our God is always bigger. And so not only do we share in common this thing, but we need to be reminded that we also share in common someone. 
and that is a person of Jesus. In the midst of John possibly wallowing in the struggle of this tribulation in this life, God shows up. We see that in verse 10 and following. Verse 10 says, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, what's happening there? See, John was still on the island of Patmos. God doesn't take him off of that island at this point. But it says he was caught up in the Spirit. That means that somehow the sovereign God of the universe takes John away from the the physical place of Patmos in his mind and his spirit to a spiritual place to show him a vision of a spiritual reality. He was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The idea of on, on a Sunday, as John is hard at work on the island of Patmos, God takes his spirit to another spot to show him something great. And the thing that God is going to show him in this vision is not just something for himself. As a matter of fact, the thing that God is going to show him is something that God wants John to record and to share with others. Specifically, he says, I want you to take this information, write it down, and share it with these seven particular churches in Asia. Now, the the question that you probably should have at this point is, why those seven churches? I mean, he mentioned seven churches in, in Asia. Were those like the BCS top seven of churches in the world at that day? They were the best seven, so they're the ones that get the mail. Um, why is it that they were singled out? And I think the answer to that is not because they were the best and not because they were the brightest. They weren't the winners of the beauty pageant of churches. The reason why they were selected to receive these letters is because they were churches in the geographic region around where John had ministered. One of them, the church in Ephesus, was the place where John had pastored. But the other six churches were in that geographic region. They were churches where John would have had an influence, where John would have had an audience, where John would have had an understanding. I think the reason why God says, share this message with not just the church in Ephesus, but with these six other churches was because God wanted John to know that this was a message that wasn't just for John's personal edification. This was a message that was needed and necessary for Christians everywhere, not even just the Christians in his church, but every Christian he came in contact with needed to be aware of the information that God was getting ready to reveal to John. So he says, pick up a pen and write it down. These seven churches become representative of even you and I. God wants us to get this info. And so John is there in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a voice behind him speaking to him. Now, who was it who was talking to John? Well, we see in verses 12 and following that the person who was talking to John was the person of Jesus Christ. It had been 60 years since he'd heard his voice. And yet Jesus showed up and said, hey, John, I want you to write this down. Can you imagine what that would have felt like on the island of Patmos? What a message. John turns, verse 12, and this is what he sees. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash 
around his chest. Now, in this vision of Jesus, there's a number of symbols that are communicated about the person of, of Jesus Christ. The first thing we see is that Jesus is standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now, what's the significance of those lampstands? Well, that, that's a symbol that God didn't want you and I to miss because in verse 20 of chapter 1, God explains what those lampstands represent. It says in verse 20 that those lampstands represent the seven churches of Asia. Symbolically, they represent the churches who are following Jesus Christ around the world, including us. And where is Jesus but in the midst of the lampstands? Now, what was the significance of that? What, what's, the, the, what's the point of that? Well, it's possible that John would have felt like Jesus was absent from the world. It's possible that he might have felt like Jesus was absent from his church in Ephesus, even as John was absent from his church in Ephesus. But what God shows John in the vision is that Jesus is present with his people. In a spiritual realm, in a spiritual way, Jesus is present with his people so that his promise that he would never leave us or forsake us is absolutely true. And it took a special revelation to remind John of that. And if you're here today and you feel like, is is God really here? Is he really aware? Is he really close to me? I feel really distant from him. You need to read and and reread Revelation chapter 1 and verse, verse 12 and 13 be reminded that Jesus is right here present with you. Where is he? He is among the golden lampstands. He is with his people. He is with his church. And it says that the one who is among the lampstands is one like a son of man. Now, that's a very clear indication that the person who was standing in the midst of those lampstands was not a a second lieutenant in God's army, but it was Jesus himself. The title Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title of himself. He used it most frequently of himself in the Gospels. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 and the idea that the Messiah would be both God and man. So right there in the midst of the lampstands was the Son of God. Jesus is present with us today. It says that he's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. That's interesting that he describes his attire. He talks about this long robe. That would have brought to mind for John kind of a a priestly symbol. Priests in the temple would have worn long robes like this. Jesus is our high priest. He's the one that intercedes to God on our behalf. What's interesting is that this, this long robe, symbolic of Jesus' priestly nature, It's said to have a sash, but where's the sash? You know, many times a priest would wear the sash around their waist. They would wear their sash around their waist when they they were serving. They were going to be offering sacrifices, those kinds of things. The sash would be around their waist to cinch up their clothes while they did work. We see this when Jesus, in in John chapter 13, washes the disciples' feet. He he takes his robe and he, he cinches it up with the sash around his waist. But that's not where the sash is in Revelation 1, is it? In the contemporary portrait of Jesus, the sash is not around the waist. The sash is around his chest. This would have been symbolic of the fact that Jesus was coming in judgment. It would have been a reminder to John that not only was Jesus present 
among the church, but he was still very much in charge. He was in a position of authority. And that though the world seemed like it was run by Caesar, it was really had a different judge, a different one at the top. It was Jesus Christ who was in control. If you're here today and, and you feel as though the world is spinning out of control, you feel as if no one is on the throne except the bad guys, and we need to remember that the one among the golden lampstands, the one with us, the one with these people is Jesus Christ, and he is clearly in charge with his robe and the sash about his chest. It goes on, verse 14. It says that the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Now, what's the significance of that statement, saying that his hair is white like wool? Well, I think that it's, a, it's an indication of Jesus being the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, but also an indication of his, of his wisdom. You know, we associate white hair with wisdom, or at least we should. And I'll, I'll illustrate it for you this way. Let's say that you have a cancer diagnosis and you go into the hospital and they're going to describe to you your surgical options. And let's say the person who is talking to you in that moment uh, about your surgical options, let's say it's Doogie Hauser. You know, this is somebody who graduated high school in a year, college in two, medical school in three. They're an 18-year-old doctor phenom, and they're standing in front of you, and, and they're, they're going to tell you about what the surgery that they're going to do. You're going to automatically be at least a little bit skeptical of them, aren't you? Now, let's contrast that. Well, let's say that this doctor walks in, and they've got this, this, this white hair, and they walk in with this, this chiseled look that they've done this a thousand times, and they've got a British accent. It always sounds better in that way, right? And they walk in, and they, they sit down, and they begin to talk to you about all the experience they have and how they've done this surgery a thousand times. What, what is your, your comfort level about their wisdom? It goes up, right? The contemporary portrait of Jesus shows him with hair white like wool. It's an indication of Jesus' wisdom of his knowledge. Not only that, he describes not just his hair, but he also describes the end of verse 14. It says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, what would that look like for somebody to look at you with eyes like flaming fire? You might say something to the effect of, he could stare right through me. He was burning a hole in my soul as he looked at me with these eyes like a flaming fire. And the reality is that that is somewhat what the idea is with his eyes of flaming fire. It's an indication that Jesus sees more than just the surface. His eyes can pierce through to see the core of the matter, to see the heart. It's interesting, this description of Jesus with eyes of flaming fire is used as a signature in one of his letters to the Asian churches in chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation to indicate God's ability to see the unseen and to know what would otherwise be unknowable. If you're here today and you feel like your life is a life of obscurity, you feel like your, your life is, is, is crowded and shrouded by the noise around you that God might see others, but he certainly doesn't see you because you're insignificant, know that his eyes are like a flaming fire. They can see right through the noise. They can see right through the crowd, and he knows exactly what's going on in your life. Also know that this is an encouragement to us if we that God can see into our hearts. It's encouragement for us in the positive and that God knows our heart and our attitudes even more than our actions. I'm thankful for this every time I sing. I love to sing in church. I've got a terrible voice. 
I'm so thankful that the God of the universe can see my heart when I sing. So I sing. This is also a challenge to us who think that God can't see the things that we have done that are hidden from all other eyes. His eyes are like a flaming fire. He sees through to see what no one else sees. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Scholars differ on their understanding of what that is referring to, but I I think it's an indication of the purity of Jesus. The purifying nature of the furnace that would have made his judgments always right and just. Into verse 15 is, his voice was like the roar of many waters. You can't ignore the roar of many waters. If you've ever been to the beach, that steady roar, it's, it's loud enough. It goes over the top of, of the, the music playing on the shore. It goes over the top of a person, a friend that's trying to talk to you. The roar of many waters is, is undeniable. When Jesus speaks, his voice is loud and his voice is clear. As we gather here today, the, the, the voice of Jesus comes to us loud and clear for us to see it, to hear it, to understand it. God wants his, his ways known. His voice is like the roar of many waters. It says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Verse 20 also gives us an indication about that picture, that symbol. The seven stars were representative of seven angels or seven messengers of the seven churches. Some have taken that to me, seven guardian angels for each of these Asian churches, representative of the angelic realm. I think it's even better, though, to understand this to be seven messengers, maybe the seven people who were going to deliver these letters that John was getting ready to write to the individual churches in Asia. A number of times in the New Testament, this word, Greek word translated here, angels, is also translated as human messengers. I think that the idea is that Jesus has the leadership of the church in his hands, a protective grip. Reminder to John, reminder to us. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, a a picture that we're familiar with of the Word of God, able to cut through and bring clarity and judgment into the world. Into verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When people saw Moses when he came off of the mountain, when he had met with God, his face shone. When Jesus came on the mountain of transfiguration, his, his body shone. It's a, it's a picture of the glory of God emanating from a source. You see, when you see this description of Jesus, folks, we see a God who is not too small. but We see a God who is larger than anything we do. As we read Revelation 1, as we get this contemporary picture, as we expand our scrapbook of our understanding of who Jesus is, we should never make him smaller than anything we're dealing with because he is large and he is in charge and he is worthy for us to trust in the midst of all difficulties. We have something in common. We have someone in common. And the last thing we see from these verses is that we have a common hope. We have a common hope. You see, when when John sees Jesus in this setting, 
he does what everybody does when you see God as this great and this awesome and this mighty. He falls down as if dead. Look at what it says. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's as if John assessed this situation and he thought, my only hope is for him to have mercy on me. John doesn't try to argue with him. He doesn't try to plead with him. He doesn't try to present his spiritual resume to him. He falls in front of his face as if, as if dead. This, it, the only hope I have is if you intercede on my behalf, God, because you are the mighty one, you are the great one. And though John falls as if dead, Jesus reaches out and does something wonderful. It says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. He lays his right hand on him and says, fear not. If you're here today and you feel like you're drowning in the midst of your problems, look up and feel the hand of the God who is bigger than that problem, who says to you, fear not. And why should we fear not? Because we have a hope that is attached to him. And why can we have confidence in our hope that's attached to him? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, I'm the, the first and the last. Nothing came before me. Nothing will outlive me. I, I'm of the one who has always been. I created all there is. I'm the sovereign one. Your hope can be in me. Don't be afraid of whatever's going on in your life because I'm in charge. He continues, verse 18. He says, I'm the living one. Jesus was not dead. He was not in the grave. He wasn't still nailed to the cross. He was triumphant. He was alive. He was risen. Jesus says, you can have hope in me because I'm alive. As long as I'm alive, you're okay. And I will never die. He says that he once did die, pay the penalty for our sins. And because of that death, he won resurrection life for all of us. He says he's alive forevermore, and he has the keys of death and of Hades. The things that we would most be fearful of in life ultimately are things that lead to, to death. And yet Jesus says, I've got it. I've got the keys. You can trust me. Your hope can be in me, and I will deliver. We have a common hope. Verse 19 continues, and Jesus says, Write therefore these things that you've seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. What Jesus was saying is, hey, I'm not only going to give you a picture of me to share, but I'm going to tell you how the world's going to end. Because when you know how the world's going to end, you don't have to fret all the details in between. You can trust me. Place your hope in Jesus. Now here's the, the challenge that I have for all. Again, all of us have in common that we live in a world of tribulation. And all of us have in common that our tribulation that we experience at times can feel like it wants to drown us because our problems just seem too large. But my challenge for you today is to look up and see the God who is bigger than all that. And as you see that someone who is with you who is larger than your problems, that you would find and place your hope in him. And for some of you, you initially placed your faith in Christ at some point in time in the past, and you're just being reminded to be encouraged today to trust Him with the difficulty and the tribulation in your life as you await His kingdom for that patient endurance. 
But for others of you who are here, you're here today for the, maybe the first time or the 10th time or the 100th time, but you've never taken that step of placing your faith and trust in Christ as your rescuer for sin and judgment. And if that's what describes you today, my prayer for you, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray along with me here in just a moment, is that today you would trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That you would place your hope in Him, in the person, the great, the big God. 